Kobe's specific situation ended up being very complex and severe. They were like, we could do brain surgery, but it was more leaning negative. He wasn't going to make it. And I just would not accept no for an answer. <laughs> okay, no, no, not us. Like, we're not going to be a statistic in this condition or disease. I'm Zakia Watley, and this is Breakthrough, a podcast from Boston Children's about the innovations that are changing outcomes for millions of children so they can grow into healthy adults. Every episode, I talk to some of the world's top researchers about how their work is revolutionizing the future of pediatrics and what that means for children and their families. I also talk to parents and patients who've dealt with unexpected medical challenges. Their stories offer a glimpse into how cutting-edge science is transforming the landscape of healthcare. Today, we'll be hearing about in utero interventions or treatments that can be done while a fetus is still in the womb. These interventions are extremely powerful because they give doctors the ability to address physical malformations or genetic issues when their patients are very young. Thanks to these interventions, children may be able to avoid some lifelong symptoms. Later, we'll talk to two doctors who are working on these interventions. But right now, I want to introduce you to Shay and Ken Llewellyn. My name is Shay Llewellyn. My name's Ken Llewellyn. Shay and Ken's son, Kobe, was diagnosed in utero with vein of Galen malformation. Vein of Galen malformation is a type of rare blood vessel abnormality inside the brain. The malformation can cause a buildup of fluid in the brain, heart failure, and even death. Two-thirds of babies born with vein of Galen malformation are rushed to surgery immediately after birth. Here are Shay and Ken to tell Kobe's story. When we first found out about the diagnosis of Kobe, I was around 33 weeks pregnant. I found a support group with several parents of other VOGM children. You know, I'm usually a private person about my children, but I just felt the urge to speak out because nobody knew. No one we knew knew anything about it, had ever heard of it. So I, I posted this long thing about how we found this out. They're talking open brain surgery. We're afraid. And several moms had commented like, hey, my child gets treated at Boston's Children's and showed pictures of their children, not babies, older, five years old, seven years old, alive. I told Shay, look, Whatever you find, whatever the research comes up to, whatever direction it points us, I will make sure we get there. I'll move heaven and earth to get you there. That's really what led us to Boston. So that week I joined that group. I find Dr. Orbach and submit all my imaging. The following week is when we had our consult with him. And he was like, listen, this is not a regular vein of Galen malformation. This is very complex. I've not seen something like this before. You need to come. And we're like, when? And he's like, now. We talked to him and we were literally on the road a few days after that. Mm -hmm. We talked to Dr. Orbach. He was very professional, but he also gave us, you know, realistic numbers. And he said that the complexity is something he had never seen before. And he's like, if there is a brain to save that can operate his body, regardless of what neurodevelopmental delays, I will save it. And then, you know, he did only give us a 50% survival rate, but it was 50% based on all of the information, all of every research he had done and his experience. And that 50% felt like a thousand percent compared to the 1% we had at home. Kobe was born on St. Patrick's Day and underwent his first of seven brain surgeries the very next day. 
All told, Kobe spent 143 days in the neonatal intensive care unit. Today, Kobe is thriving. He's hitting normal milestones and growing up just like any other toddler. When I look at Kobe, even now, I could still reflect and remember when I held him the first time when he had the leads, the breathing tube, and being hooked up to the IVs, and knowing how sick he was. It's just, it's surreal, you know, seeing him smile, seeing him laugh, seeing him crawl, saying, Dada, you can say Mama and uh, Baba, and, you know, watching him do the things that he's doing now versus where he was at then. You would never know that the child had surgery. Shay and Ken are parents to a very happy, healthy one-year-old Kobe, thanks in part to the routine screening and testing Shay had during pregnancy. But prenatal testing is just the beginning. In some cases, doctors are able to treat expecting mothers and their fetuses before giving birth. Shay and Ken Llewellyn are among the 3% of parents who receive a birth defect diagnosis while expecting. It can be devastating for parents to learn that their child will be born with a life-threatening condition. Some of these conditions are physical malformations like vein of Galen malformation or spina bifida, which is a condition where the neural tube in the spine doesn't fully close. And many others are linked to genetic abnormalities like Down syndrome or sickle cell disease. To better understand the most common conditions diagnosed in utero, I spoke to Dr. Alareza Shamshasaz. He recently began his new role at Boston Children's as the co-director of the Maternal Fetal Care Center, where patients like Shay and Ken's son Kobe are seen. He explained how improvements in screening technology have led to better care for fetal patients, and we talked about the developments he thinks we might see in the future. Hi, Dr. Shamshir Saz. Thanks for talking to me today. Hello. Can you give us an overview of prenatal medicine as it stands today? Sure. For centuries, the womb was a black box for human. That means we didn't know the baby would grow in the womb, but we didn't have any uh, concept of what is going on. And uh, with the advancement of technologies, especially ultrasound and uh, MRI, we get more and more information regarding of how that baby is uh, growing inside the uterus. The congenital anomaly is common, but one out of 33 kids would have some kind of uh, congenital anomaly, and many of those can be diagnosed through the ultrasound. Majority are minor, but some of them can be a major, and those major ones can put the baby life in a danger or can cause major morbidity to the baby. And could you give us uh, a little bit more of an explanation of what you mean when you say congenital anomaly? The congenital anomaly means your, you know, your organ doesn't develop as they need to develop. That means they are not going through a normal pathway of development. And that congenital anomaly can be a very minor things that many times, even you don't diagnose it through your lifetime. And sometimes they are so severe that even our ultrasound in, you know, 18 or 19 weeks of the gestation, we can easily diagnose them through the imaging. So I think what you're helping me understand is that some of these anomalies can be minor, but some of them can be really major so much so that you can pick them up on ultrasound. What are some of the treatments available? You know, or I guess maybe historically what have the treatments been and with some of the latest technology, what are some of the treatments that are available in utero? That's a great question. With the advancement of our imaging, then uh, we figure out and we diagnose these congenital anomalies. 
and uh, then through a recent advantage of surgical technology and instruments, now we reach the point that we can have access inside the womb and we can treat and we can repair some of these congenital malformation or congenital anomalies. One of the common ones that we do is we have a group of twins. We call as a monochorionic diaminotic twins. In the past, about 80 or 90% of these twins both will die. But with a recent advantage that we have, we can get inside the womb, we can look at the placenta, we can find those connections superficial connection on the placenta and then with the laser we can ablate those connection and stop the connection the good thing is now you know in, in a good experience hand about 80 or 90 percent of those twins we had a double survival that means both of them will survive the other common disease that we are doing is another disease that we call as a neural tube defect and the neural tube defect is a disease that there's a defect on a neural tube on a fetus and with the repairing of these neurotube defects inside the womb, then we can have a much more better outcomes for this baby after the birth. And uh, there are different techniques that, again, one of the techniques we uh, recently developed is a mostly minimally invasive daughter disease that, again, one of the uh, pioneers and one of the leading in the entire country is the Boston Children is a disease with a cardiac anomaly. And there are a certain cardiac anomalies that we can diagnose them again through the ultrasound and the fetal echogram. And then if the baby have those specific diagnoses, then there is a possibility that we can intervene during the fetus time to prevent of more morbidity and more damage to those heart in future. And again, Boston Children is one of the places that is leading it national and internationally. The fourth disease that I usually categorize it is another disease we call as a lower urinary tract obstruction. And that's what happened is there's obstruction that the baby cannot pee because of not peeing. There's no fluid around the baby. The lungs not developing. Therefore, what we do is uh, we have a different techniques that we can put a small shunt inside the bladder. It will drain the you know fluid outside. Uh, the baby will have a normal amniotic fluid and uh, the objective is lungs will grow and those kiddo will survive. Therefore, if you see, you know, there's a loss of evolving, there's lots of new options for the treatment inside the womb. And many of those coming because our diagnosis will get better because of the better ultrasound and the majority of the pregnant women will do the ultrasound at, you know, around 18 to 20 weeks. And also our instruments get much better. Therefore, we had a better access inside the womb and doing more and more complex interventions. And so I'm trying to get an understanding of how prevalent in utero treatments are right now. And then if you think it's likely that they will become more common in the future, and if so, why or why not? No, definitely. Again, it's not pretty common, but when you uh, look at the right to the state population, we had a close to the 4 million deliveries per year. Uh, a big fetal center usually do about, you know, 100, 150 cases per year. There are not too many centers around the country that, you know, offer the entire, you know, nine yard. And definitely if you want to, you know, intervene and do that kind of intervention, as I mentioned, you need to have a very comprehensive multidisciplinary approach. That means this type of the, you know, intervention can happen in the environment of Boston children. Why? Because you have all of those layers of layers of, you know, 
incredible physician that can together can work and they can, you know, solve some of these problems. Therefore, you know, only big institution can do it. In the future, you know, I do believe that, that it will be open to the more and more disease. And because of three major things that can happen in the future. Uh, the first one, again, our diagnosis is getting better and better. That means our imaging through ultrasound and MRI is getting better. We That kind of screening of doing the ultrasound for the pregnancy at the first trimester and even in the you know, second trimester is getting more and more common. Therefore, majority of our pregnant women will go through that process and we diagnose it. The second one is the technology. That means we're coming off new instruments, smaller instruments, more flexible instruments, more sophisticated instruments. These are the ones that can help us for doing more repair and sophisticated you know, intervention that we want to do. And the third generation of the things that will come, I categorize them as a stem cell therapy and the gene therapy in the fetus. And with that said, there are starting some trials around the world in the United States for stem cell. And I'm starting to believe that the gene therapy will be next generation. It will come to the, to the field as a research, most probably in the less than five years. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's so promising for stem cells and then gene therapy? For stem cells, one of the things that, again, now in offering is alpha thalassemia. Major alpha thalassemia is a lethal disease. The baby will never can make it. Or if they made it, a uh, majority of time, those kids need to have a blood transfusion for the entire life. With the stem cells, they are getting some blood from mommy. They get separate those stem cells. They transfer those stem cells to the fetus. The first diagnosis and transfusion, and usually that happens between 16 to 20 weeks, with the hope that these stem cells will stay around and the baby can benefit from those. Again, it's in the research protocols, in a research environment, but hope that I'm pretty sure that many of these stem cells therapy will start to get more and more better results. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about how gene therapy can be used to treat illnesses in utero. Sure. I think, you know, many people starting working about, you know, different type of the gene therapy in the fetus and which one is the best target. There's a huge debate between the, the groups. What is the best target? I do believe one of the best target is the sickle cell. And the reason is um, it's not a Pretty complex gene modification. That means you know it's a single mutation that we, we we can easily detect it. But we do know that some of these severe sickle cell disease is really morbid to the patient, and also the life span of uh, our sickle cell patients that are really severe is is pretty short, unfortunately. And treatment and take care of these patients is sometimes very expensive. Therefore, with that said, again, you know, if we can fix it inside the womb before those damage happen and all of those expense we need, it's cost effective, it's pretty, you know, effective also for the treatment and uh, the targeting of the gene is not too much complex compared to the other chromosome anomalies, but it still is a long way to go. Do you anticipate any ethical concerns with any of this type of in utero work different from what we're seeing so far? No, definitely. I think pretty tied to the ethics in medicine and especially the phytotherapy ethics. And on any of new treatment, I strongly believe that we need to have a, a very good tie to our ethicist and our medical you know, ethics group. They can have a very nice framework of what are the ethics we can do. And then we follow those frameworks. 
And with that said again, that means all of these things that I mentioned, especially on the advanced part, everything's coming down to the innovation and through research. We definitely need to have followed the guidelines of the research and the ethics behind it and consent from the mommy. And for even this type of the intervention, usually we're mandated in the United States to get a consent from couple. That means that both mom and dad need to consent for this type of treatment. And then long-term follow-up. That means I'm strongly believe that if we treat it and we see a good outcomes that at the birth still we're mandated to follow these uh, kiddos very uh, closely and make sure that you know nothing happened down the road in five or six or 10 or 20 years. Incredible. Thank you. Again, thank you very much, everybody, for your time. Do you mind if I ask you, what's your background? <laughs> I was in a cell and molecular bio program, oh, but okay. I have a PhD Def in genetics and genomics. Okay, definitely. That's yeah, great. Yeah, I used to yeah. teach cell biology, so <laughs> I can go Thanks. with you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Like Dr. Shamshasa said, researchers have made incredible advancements in the realm of in utero treatments. Just one example is the progress doctors have made in treating twin-to-twin -twin transfusion syndrome. If left untreated, these fetuses would have had a 10 to 15% survival rate. But with treatment, the majority of fetuses will survive and be normal and healthy. Further down the road, doctors may be able to cure disease in utero. Clinical trials, like the one using gene therapy to treat sickle cell disease at Boston Children's, are taking place across the country. The findings of these trials will improve life outcomes before babies even take their first breath. Earlier, we heard from two parents, Shay and Ken Llewellyn, about the astounding impact that early diagnosis and surgery had on Kobe's life. Kobe was diagnosed in utero with vein of Galen malformation. At first, the Llewellyns were told he had a 1% chance of survival. Dr. Orbach revised that prediction, telling the Llewellyns he thought Kobe had a 50% chance of survival. I sat down with Dr. Orbach to talk about how he treats vein of Galen malformation today and his innovative approach to treating it in utero. Good morning, Dr. Orbach. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining me today. Can you tell me about your work on vein of Galen malformation? Vein of Galen malformation is a congenital vascular anomaly. So it's a manner in which the blood vessels of the brain form in an atypical fashion. And it usually causes extremely high rates of flow to the malformation, often to the detriment of the surrounding brain. It presents itself clinically most commonly after birth, sometimes in very dramatic fashion. Although these days the malformation is usually diagnosed before birth on prenatal imaging, usually on a prenatal ultrasound. And it poses incredible technical challenges in terms of how we might treat it and sort of pushes all of us to the edge of what's doable technically in order to safely treat patients. I would say that's where being at a place like Children's has been a huge help because you sort of can get inspired by your colleagues doing other things which may seem like they're unrelated but turn out to be related. You mentioned that now you're able to kind of detect these types of malformations a little earlier, but... Before, what did a vein of Galen diagnosis mean for quality of life? Yep. So just for context, I will say that until, you know, fairly recently, the ability to offer effective treatment after birth was really pretty minimal. So there were a set of techniques that were developed 
using catheters to go inside the blood vessels and try to fix the vein of Galen malformation that were really developed in the late 1980s and early 1990s. But before that point, the diagnosis was almost, you know, close to 100% mortality because there was just nothing you could offer. There had been some efforts to do open brain surgery on the babies when they presented these problems, but the, the big vein that's getting that high flow is sort of right in the middle of the brain in a location that cannot be addressed and you have a newborn baby without much blood volume overall and this incredibly high flow malformation that's very high risk to touch surgically. So there were just no good options at all. And the development of these catheter-based techniques and a procedure called embolization in the late 80s and early 90s really revolutionized the field and for the first time did enable us to offer effective treatment to some of the babies after birth. And that has sort of been the state of the field, I would say, since that time. There are a few centers in the world that see this regularly and are able to offer this kind of treatment after birth. But it's still pretty unnerving to make the diagnosis for the families and certainly for the providers as well. If you look at the, the numbers, the best data that we have show that, as I said, about two-thirds of the babies with this condition do run into major trouble right away as newborns, typically on day one or two of life. They show these signs of heart failure, they need a breathing tube. And if you don't intervene with an embolization, they just will not survive because the heart failure is, is sort of overwhelming. The other third actually do quite well up front. So we admit them to the NICU for observation after birth, but they don't show these signs of heart failure. They're fine, they don't need a breathing tube. And we discharge them home. And we follow them very closely for the first few months of life. We get regular head ultrasounds, regular clinical check-ins. And then we typically bring them back to treat the malformation, but electively. And that's usually between about three and six months of age. And that's in those babies, since they don't have the heart failure, what we're most worried about are the brain injuries. So if you just leave a malformation alone and ignore it, a fairly high fraction of them will develop these brain injuries, which can be devastating. And if we act before about age six months, you can prevent that from happening. And what makes the situation very tough for the parents is that you get this diagnosis. And until recently, there was really no way to even know how things would end up. So it, it's very unnerving. The, the range is from a potentially fatal situation within days after birth to a child who looks terrific and is discharged home and then has elective treatment and can grow up and, you know, completely intact and have a full normal life. And so now I'd like to talk about your work with fetal treatment of vein of Galen malformation. Okay. To start, can you tell us like, what separates the type of cases where you decide, all right, we have to do something now versus we can wait until birth and do the umbilical cord catheter? Yep. Tell us a little bit about that type of IU intervention and then how you determine the, the route for cases. So the, the first question I would say is, is the care we're providing right now adequate or not? Is there room for improvement? I mentioned before that about two-thirds of the babies are born and then have this very severe heart failure after birth. The best data we have show that there's about a 40% mortality in that group, mm. even when they're treated at a first-rate, very experienced 
referral center. So in the 60% who do survive, there's about a 50% rate of very severe neurocognitive impairment despite treatment. And so if you put those numbers together, you're looking at only about a 30% chance for that cohort of babies who run into trouble as newborns to grow out of infancy into young childhood and then adulthood to survive and to survive in a way where they don't have severe impairment. And so that's obviously not a good outcome, and it shows that there's a lot of room for improvement. So the first step was really to ask the question, is it possible for us to predict when we get the fetal diagnosis, how is this fetus going to do after birth? Because if you can't predict that, then it's probably unethical to try something brand new where you don't know if you're going to help or harm. And so we systematically looked at all of the imaging characteristics we could think of based on the fetal MRI scan. And so we looked at all the blood vessels supplying the malformation, the normal blood vessels of the brain that are not supplying the malformation, the size of that vein, the size of all kinds of other veins around it. And we found that a lot of those numbers correlated okay with the outcome, but there was a particular measurement that had really a a remarkable correlation with the clinical outcome of the fetus. So you have this round, big sphere of a vein in the middle of the brain that's the collector for all the arteries. And then there's a draining vein that takes that blood back to the main venous sinuses of the brain and back to the heart and lungs. And it turns out that if that draining venous sinus is narrow, if it's very narrow, then the risk that that baby is going to run into trouble after birth is very low, extremely low. On the other hand, if that draining sinus is very wide, then the risk that that fetus is going to run into trouble as a newborn is extremely high. And we can actually predict it with, for some measurements, you get to 90% probability that that baby is going to run into trouble and you do statistical analysis and, and it's really a very robust correlation. So, so that was a, a really positive development in the sense that for the first time we really could have a different kind of conversation with with a mom, you know, facing this diagnosis in utero and and often with some certainty either talk about a very favorable prognosis or a very unfavorable prognosis or something in the middle. So that was the first step was can we identify the babies who are going to run into trouble? And then once we can and then we know that that cohort faces this very high mortality and and really high neurological morbidity as well, you know, the risk of growing up with major impairment, then you can say, all right, is there anything we can do before birth? Because it looks like if you wait until birth and then you use all the best available treatment, we still have this really rough prognosis. And so is there anything we can do before birth? So we have had for about 20 years now a very active and really path-breaking group doing fetal cardiac interventions. And so just like there are malformations of the brain that can be diagnosed in utero, there are lots of malformations of the heart and the blood vessels around the heart that can be diagnosed in utero. And they also come in different degrees of severity. Some of them are basically incompatible with, with life you know, out of the womb. And the cardiologists over the last two decades or so have developed a series of techniques where they can do interventions in utero to try to address some of these problems and allow the heart to develop for the rest of pregnancy to the point where when the baby's born, the baby will survive and grow up. And 
I had the benefit and our team had the benefit of sort of all of this wisdom that they developed over these last two decades and all the knowledge of how to do a procedure on a fetus in a safe way. And once I became really familiar with what they were doing, the anatomy of the vein of Galen malformation really suggested an analogous type of approach because as I said, you have this big vein in the middle of the brain that's getting this high arterial flow. And typically what we do after birth is we put catheters in the artery and try to target that arteriovenous junction where the arteries and the veins are connected. And that's not feasible to do for a fetus. Those arteries are just too small and there's no way to get to them. But if instead we could target the vein itself and pack that vein with these coils that are made for closing blood vessels, and not in a way that would close it entirely, but just pack it enough so we could dramatically decrease the flow through the malformation. We might transfer that fetus from the cohort that runs into trouble after birth to that other cohort, where now the malformation is still there, but it just doesn't have enough flow to cause heart failure. The baby will hopefully do well in the NICU, be discharged home, and then we can treat them electively, You know, get brain MRIs and, and just have an elective plan for treatment to maximize their development. And the anatomy is also favorable for that because, as you know, babies, when they're born, have a soft spot in their skull. They actually have two soft spots. The bigger one in front is the one that most people are familiar with. There's a smaller soft spot toward the back of the skull. And that one happens to be sitting right over the pathway to this big vein. So there's a structure in the back of the head called the torcular, which is a confluence of all the venous sinuses of the brain on their way to sending the blood back to the body. And that soft spot, which is really an opening where the bones of the skull come together but have not yet fused, is sitting right over that torcular. And so by analogy with what the cardiologists are doing, by inserting a needle under ultrasound guidance through the uterus, Instead of going into the baby's chest to get to the heart, if we aim for that soft spot in the back of the head and just put the needle tip into that venous sinus, we could then introduce a catheter through that needle and direct it to the vein and then pack it with these devices, with these metal coils in a way that would decrease the flow. Typically, when developing new surgical techniques uh, or new approaches to treat things, obviously one would like to do a trial in some safer setting before trying this on patients. And often that's done with animal models of disease, for example, for a new surgical technique. But really there are no models out there that resemble vein of Galen malformation at all. So brain arteriovenous lesions of all kinds just don't really seem to happen in other species in, in the way that they happen in humans. And so we took a different approach to sort of prepare ourselves and, and figure out how to do the procedure. And instead, we worked with the simulations group in the hospital, and we asked them to build us essentially a fetal brain. And so we took actual fetal MRI scans that we have of patients that we were treating, following as fetuses and then treating after birth. And we gave those to the simulations group and we had them design 
uh, brains made out of a substance called cryogel, which looks just like brain tissue when you ultrasound it. But they built into the middle of the cryogel a sphere that was the same size and the same shape as the veins of these fetuses whose scans we had with a draining sinus that exactly resembled it. We made a little soft spot on the top of the phantom. And then we just did dry runs. So I worked with the multidisciplinary team with my colleagues, Louise Wilkins Haug and Carol Benson over at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And we ultrasounded the phantoms. We hooked up all the fluid and, and catheters and needles. And we basically introduced the needle under ultrasound into the phantom, put the microcatheter in. We determine what coils to use for the malformation in advance based on the MRI scan. And we did that for these phantoms. And then we coiled it. And then we scanned the phantoms in an MRI scanner after the fact to demonstrate that we had actually coiled it appropriately. We cut open the phantoms to demonstrate that the coils were deposited. So that was sort of our proxy to submit to the IRB and to the FDA to show that the technique looked like it was sound and and that the approach could work. Wow. You know, it, it almost feels like all of this is possible because you're at a place where you're able to interface with all these other teams, the inspiration from the cardiac team to then being able to work together with the simulations team to build the phantoms where you can even have proof of concept because otherwise you don't have a model. It, it wouldn't happen. hundred yeah. percent. I, I agree with that. And I would say that characterizes my whole practice. I feel incredibly lucky to be in this environment because, you know, it's important to be experienced and know how to do the actual procedures. But honestly, the procedure is just one part of caring for the patient. There's a huge amount that goes into the planning beforehand, the care in the ICU, anesthesia, my neurological colleagues, neurosurgical colleagues, and you just will not have the same good outcome for patients if you're not working with people who are really excellent across the board in these very different teams. And that's very much true for this research as well. It just wouldn't happen otherwise. Thank you so much. You've been a, a great sport. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. Really, thank you for the opportunity. Dr. Orbach's work to treat vein of Galen malformation in utero will have a significant impact on patient survival rates. And this means Shay and Ken Llewellyn's experience as parents of a child who overcame vein of Galen malformation would be the norm instead of the exception. I wanted to make sure that parents who got the same diagnosis knew that survival was possible, you know, even thriving after was possible. So I wanted to make sure they had hope and remembered that regardless of what the treatment course looked like, that there was still a light at this end of the rainbow, a pillar of hope, so to say. Being able to treat these conditions before birth means that many children who may not have had a shot at life will now have one. Dr. Orbach and Dr. Sham Shirsaz are among the many doctors who are pushing healthcare toward a brighter future. A future where kids like Kobe may never need to see a neonatal intensive care unit. And the care that the Llewellyns received at Boston Children's may become the standard in every hospital across the country. Thanks for listening. Breakthrough is a production of Boston Children's. Next episode, we'll talk to a doctor who revolutionized the treatment for ACL tears, the season-ending knee injury that many young athletes fear. I just got very curious about it, so I spent pretty much every spare minute I had of the next six months in the medical school library just trying to read all I could about the ACL and why didn't it heal. And what I found was that nobody really knew why. And I just thought, this is something that would be really fun to figure out. 
why don't we figure out why it doesn't heal? Because then maybe we could do something about it and people could keep their own ACL instead of having to have this ACL reconstruction type procedure. That's next time on Breakthrough. If you enjoyed this episode of Breakthrough, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. See you next time.